If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is going to be the text that we'll look at this morning. Specifically, verse 16 to 22. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Although we're going to just read and study and meditate our time on verse 16 to 22, I'd like to read the entire chapter to give us a context of what Solomon is thinking. So I'm going to read from chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. There is a point in time for everything. There is a point in time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime, Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. I said to myself, concerning the sons of man, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts, for the fate of of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? I've seen that nothing is better and that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us as we study your word. Um, enable the Spirit to uh, fill our minds with truth and convict us so that we can live in this fallen world in a way that's pleasing to you. Be with us this morning. Pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards is arguably one of the greatest theologians 
that is from that's born in the United States. He's written and preached many sermons about the life of a Christian, and even uh, more than that, uh, beyond this life, the hope that Christians have in heaven. One of the sermons that he wrote, wrote titled, Dying to Gain, which is written to help Christians understand the reality of death and hope that the Christians, that they have in Christ. That because of, of what Christ has given us, we have something to look forward to in all of eternity. This is one of his excerpts from his sermons. Quote, At death, all the troubles and afflictions of a true Christian are come to an eternal end. This is nothing but a continued chain of troubles and sorrows. We come weeping and crying into the world and sighing and sobbing. We continue in the world and gasping and groaning. We go out of the world. There are none, no, not the most prosperous and successful, but what every day met with griefs for past evils, uneasy for pre- uneasiness for present evil, and fear and anxiousness for, e- for future evils. The heart knows its own bitterness. If there were no higher sort of happiness than what is earthly, men would really be the most miserable of any sort of creature upon earth. For beasts are only afflicted with present pains without grieving for past or fearing future. But man, besides that, he feels as much present pain as the generality of beasts. He feels past misfortunes for a great while, which doubles it, and is tormented with the expectation of future, as which makes it threefold. But death is final and everlasting to all afflictions. This is the first thing that is gained by it a full and perfect deliverance from afflictions and that eternally, end quote. For the Christian, we understand that this life is a short life. It will end quickly. It will often end unexpectedly. But at the same time, we pass, well, the moment we pass through death, we enter into glory. We realize that all the pains that have happened in the past is done away with. There's no more afflictions, no more disease, no more injustice, no more turmoil, no more confusion, or anything that is, that is tainted by sin. And as Christian, what makes life so exciting for us is that we have this future to look forward to, and then even this future that we are able to experience in heaven for all of eternity. Yet despite all of these rich promises that we see in Scripture, we have to live through this life. This is a hard life. This, this present existence is very difficult. How can we make sense of the things that we see going on in the world? How can we endure the harshness of life? Solomon here helps us with this book, and particularly this passage. This book is Solomon's, in a lot of ways, his his final recorded writing or his message on life. He instructs his listeners, particularly his son, on how to experience all of life under the sun. Not only that, but he, he experienced everything without God. Everything that Solomon has done, everything he has accomplished, is meaningless, futility, and pointless. Nothing that he did had any lasting significance. Solomon spent his life using the gifts that God has given him to indulge in sin and every kind of pleasures that the world has to offer. Solomon wasted most of his life just pursuing all of these things, and he hopes that by being an example to us in a negative way that we won't waste our life. 
The most common word in this entire book is the word vanity. In the Hebrew, it's the word hevel. It's, it's supposed to be kind of like a wordplay of sorts. When you put your hand in front of your mouth and you say the Hebrew word hevel, hevel, it's like a little breath. And that's what your life is. That is what your career is. That is what every type of pleasure and enjoyment in this life is. It's just a short little breath, just like steam coming out of the coffee or little bubbles that your kids play with. The moment you take notice of it, it stops. It's gone. This is how fast your life is, and it goes by very quickly. Chapter 3 in particular speaks of of how everything that happens under some of the extremes in life, the general realities of life, that, that, that we live in different seasons. We go from one extreme, we live through the middle, and then we go through another extreme, and then back again. We go from one to the next. We go from life to death. We go from pleasure to pain. Verse 16 to 22, the passage we're going to look at today, is, it's, it's like an epilogue of sorts. It kind of rounds out the rest of, the, of this chapter. We will go from... Uh, this passage here that's going to show us Solomon's observation of what is broken and wrong with the world. Whereas the first several verses just speaks of generality, he's going to speak specifically now of what is broken in this world. The world wants to find answers all around them. They look to every single thing except for God, who is actually omnipresent. They look for the object instead of the one who created everything in this world. And we as a church must not fall into the trap. We must not fall into this trap into thinking that the solutions to all of life's biggest problems are found in this world. No amount of time spent looking for answers in anything will satisfy us. And Solomon wants to show us just three general observations about life so that we can fear the Lord. How can we make sense or make the best out of life? Solomon's observation and insight into life isn't top secret per se, Uh, But it is something that, um, if you're not mindful of your surroundings, it would seem that way. It would seem like it's some mystery if you're not mindful of your surroundings. Psalm here is going to give us insight into how the world works. And what what we will find and what he will share with us is that uh, this is just how life is. It may not be pleasant to hear, but this is just how it is. Life in a fallen world is not easy to live. So Solomon is trying to get, prepare his listener, particularly his son, and how he can encounter and exist on this planet. Solomon used all of his time to instruct his son on how we need to live this life. So the first general observation about life in a fallen world is this, is that there is injustice in the world. That there is injustice in the world. Verse 16 Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Solomon, Solomon seemingly closes this portion of life and death to now speak of the injustice of the course on earth from the oppression of man. This isn't random, but it's intended to show that the progression of human life it just, it's just what, it just gets worse and worse. This is just how life is. It goes from good to bad. Sometimes you have good leaders and sometimes you have bad leaders. Sometimes you have good rulers. Sometimes you have bad rulers. People live, people's lives go from one extreme to another. Now, just go through, now just, just through his observation as a king, he knows that there will be people that will suffer injustice. Solomon says that the place that was supposed to be filled with justice and righteousness are filled with wickedness. 
the place of justice in modern way thinking. This is like the kings and rulers or presidents. Uh, the leaders are supposed to be instruments of God to check evil are people that are committing evil. These are people that, who are promoting evil. The place of righteous, righteousness in our context would be something like the legal system, the legal courts. The courts that are supposed to uphold the laws of the land, the uphold righteousness, are filled with wicked people. Bad people lead badly, and that leads to very bad consequences. You've seen the statue before of Lady Liberty. Lady Liberty is a statue um, usually in front of courthouses, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be an embodiment of justice. Everything about it is supposed to be a symbol of something about justice. There's a blindfold in, on Lady Liberty's eyes to, to show that she's supposed to be impartial. Justice is supposed to be impartial. It's not biased to, and, is not, and is blind to any personal preferences. Um, on one hand, Lady Liberty also holds a scale, which is supposed to symbolize weighing the evidence equally, that everything's supposed to be balanced. What is said and what is proven are supposed to be equal. There's a sword on the other hand, which is supposed to be a symbol of judgment that comes quickly and accurately. And even the, the garment that Lady Liberty wears, this toga, in the Greek culture is supposed to be an embodiment of justice. Whatever, whatever legal system we live in, we understand that's not always the case. Every legal system that's supposed to show these uh, attributes fail. The, the, the state's... Um, this, this statue shows up in, in many countries, and particularly Western ones, and however we know that justice is not always fair. Right? We understand that things are not always impartial. Things are not always measured accurately. Justice is not always exact. It doesn't happen. And, and we know that in a fallen world, there is no perfect justice. Solomon have he lived thousands of years before the statue was ever created, and he, and he observed the exact same thing. He observed that in this world, in this broken world, perfect justice can never be exact. The justice system in any form or for all of time before Christ's return will be imperfect. Solomon's general observation of the world is that there are going to be people in situations that, promote, that are supposed to promote good and check evil, but instead they're run by wicked people. They're run by evil men and women. You may think that's so backwards that there should be justice, that there should be uh, people in the courts and people that are in high positions that hold to righteousness. But you have to understand it's not backwards because living in a Genesis 3 world, everything was never upright to begin with. Ever since the fall, everything is backwards. Ever since Genesis 3, this side of Eden, life under the sun will always have imperfect justice. What is right may be wrong later, and what is wrong now may be right later. It just depends on whatever group believes that they have the moral high ground. But yet, this is not how our God is. Our God is not a God that changes because of, 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 of social consensus. Our God is holy, and His standard is always that way. He is the definition of, perfection, of perfect law. Everything that we know is right and wrong comes from him. Romans 1 tells us that the law is written in our hearts. We know right and wrong instinctively because God is a God that knows right and wrong. He is the one that decides what is sinful and what is good. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For time for every matter, for every deed is there. Solomon then 
kind of answers his own dilemma and his observation by pointing and making us look to God. Psalms say that God will be the final judge and make all things right one day. All actions in this life will be re-examined by God and he will look at every evidence and he will judge perfectly. You do realize that if there's even someone in this life, let's say they commit some heinous crime and they're sentenced to death row or a lifetime in prison, if these individuals die without Christ, they're not free. They're not free from, from this world. In fact, they are going to go to a stricter judgment. This place, this prison, is really just a holding place for them to meet the true and righteous judge. Their true court date is before the Lord because the justice that's been imposed on them in this life is does not satisfy God's perfect justice. He demands more than just keeping someone in place for a lifetime. He demands that every sin be punished for all of eternity. Every single one of us is not just the ones that we as a society condemn. Sometimes we understand that justice isn't served in this life, but God will deal with it in his courtroom. Psalm observes and realizes that the innocent man can be declared guilty, and there are guilty people that can be declared innocent. Unjust leaders do exist, and there's no perfect way to deal with that. Solomon just observes this and begins to think theologically. He knows that God will deal with it one day. Solomon's musing and observations are so countercultural. He even he isn't even suggesting some sort of uprising or revolt because you know he is a king. He's not telling people you need to overthrow all leaders because that would mean that he's going to tell people to overthrow himself. He's not saying that people need to do that or even have to reform the legal system because he understands that over time you could reform and change it once and eventually those people will become evil again. It's just a matter of time. Solomon Psalm's solution to injustice is not to look to Lady Liberty, is not to look at some perfect individual in this world, but to look to the God of heaven. Justice will never be satisfied or satisfying in this life. True justice can never be met in this life. True justice can never be met in this life. Why is that? Why is it that every time uh, people are sentenced to prison, there's still a sense of dissatisfaction? It's because in our own sinful flesh, we, can't, we don't know the situation perfectly. We can't judge a situation perfectly. We don't even know how to respond perfectly when, when things are going our way. Because we're living in a fallen world. We're fallen creatures. Now, especially during our day and age, is this how you think of injustice in the world? Do you think that if we get the right people in place, the right laws in place in, in the land, that suddenly things are going to be perfectly swell? Well, if you think that, you're going to be disappointed because no matter how many judges you have that, that, uh, that may appoint, uh, the judges you have appointed that might have good verdicts, eventually you're going to be disappointed because there will be others that are going to make decisions that are going to make, that will be contrary to your thinking. Solomon has lived long enough and have seen enough in the fallen world to know that this is not possible. Remember, who wrote this book? It is Solomon. Solomon's writing, and he's the one that actually, you would think, is able to exercise perfect judgment all the time. Right? He has this, this, the wisdom from the Lord. He's able to discern right and wrong. We see that in 1 Kings, how he's able to discern whether or not this baby uh, belongs to this mother or, the, or that mother. People were amazed by how well he's able to judge right and wrong. But even he understands 
that just because he's able to do it for a season doesn't mean he will do it all the time. We know that Solomon has made poor decisions, and there are some decisions that are not recorded, and there are a lot of bad decisions that Solomon made in his personal life. Now, I would imagine that he's probably made some poor judgment, even in a legal sense as well. He's a king that has seen other kings. He's seen other kings from other nations, and he's seen how corrupted they can be. Be careful when you think that politics or presidents or Supreme Court decisions and nominations, um, that these things can be some sort of help and savior in your life. In reality, these things can be a golden calf for us Christians. We can put too much faith in politics. We can put too much hope in presidents. Don't be like that. Trust the Lord. God will one day set all things right for all people. Everyone will get what they deserve one day. Human government can only check evil for, a, for just a little while before it actually becomes evil itself. Psalm 98 tells us, Psalm 98 verse 9 says, Before the Lord, before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Jesus says the same thing or similar idea in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul, when it comes to speaking about um, suing one another, he, tell, he instructs them not to do so. But instead, he tells them to leave it to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Even 2 Corinthians, when, he, when Paul speaks of our heavenly reward, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So for the believers, we get judged for the good things we've done, and we get, and we get rewards for it, while the wicked people in the world, they get punished for all the sin that they've committed. Their, their, their punishment will be exact because God knows every little thing that he knows, of every little sin that a person commits. There's a reason why God says that we need to leave vengeance to him. Right? Romans 12 tells us that, that we need to leave vengeance and vengeance belongs to the Lord. Our punishment is never enough. Our hearts are so wicked that even when, uh, when, our, when, when we get what we want, we'll never truly satisfy with the verdict. It is just not enough. It is an important insight in a fallen world that contrary to what the world's thinking is, perfect justice will only be found when Christ returns. But until then, there is no such thing as perfect judgment. You know, we, will, we don't even know exactly how much a person should deliver, should be punished for their sin. That's how corrupted we are. We don't know how much a person actually deserves. That's so why even the Old Testament when it said an eye for an eye. It's just this will be a tangible way to make sure that when you punish someone, it should be it should fit the crime. But we in our sinful state don't even know what that looks like. We can only guess and what a person deserves when they commit a certain sin. But when it comes to God, He knows exactly how much a person a person deserves when they sin against Him. But in the meantime, for us Christians, especially when we are when we've been harmed, when we have felt 
injustice upon us, what we are called to do as Christians is to forgive. We're called to forgive. If you choose not to forgive, then you live like the world. In fact, you live as if Christ have not forgiven you for your sins. We as Christians are called to live by God's standard, even though the world rejects God's standard. And trust your pain and your frustrations to the Lord and forgive those that offend you because you know that God will have, God will take care of it. You must forgive those that have sinned against you because we have sinned against a great God that has forgiven us. John Piper has put it this way. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. You don't truly believe that God is going to punish them if you hold a grudge in your own heart. If you, have, if you want vengeance, if you take revenge, you doubt that God is going to punish them. And we know that's not the case. God will have his day, and those sinners, those unrepentant sinners, will have their day in God's courts. The world is unjust, so trust the only one that will judge perfectly in, in both its execution and its timing. Not only that there is injustice in the world, and that this world is just an unjust place, but death comes to all. Our second point is that death comes to all. Verse 18 to 21. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Solomon said again to himself that he, he's just thinking out loud. He said that, to, that God tests humans to make them realize that their fate is no different from the beasts. The point is not to put animals and humans in the same category. Rather, they are categorically in the same place when it comes to the fact that they all die, that we all die. So in reality, what Solomon is trying to get at is to speak about the reality of death. In fact, whereas human courts can be filled with wicked people who are unfair, death is the only thing that is fair because it doesn't discriminate. Everyone dies. No matter how old you are or how young you are, no matter what ethnicity or your background, your, your wealth, whatever, it doesn't matter because at some point you will die. This is a contrast that death is fair even though life may not be. Both animals and humans die. Death is the ultimate equalizer. Because of sin, those that are made in God's image are going to perish, and those that are supposed to be in control by those image bearers, animals, they will perish as well. We just look at the news almost every day, it seems like there's just a loss of life somewhere. Every day in the news, it just seems like there's just whether it's like plant life or animal life or human life, whatever. There's just death in every, almost every few seconds as you watch the news. Seeing all this should not make us jaded <coughs> or callous but it should soften our hearts to the reality of death. And the only way to be delivered from this fate is through Christ. There's only one way to be delivered from this fallen world, and that's eternity when we're with the Lord. Verse 19, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for the man over beast, for all is vanity. The evidence of Solomon's thesis in, is that both humans and animals die. Just again, this is just a general observation of life um, that all creatures die. This is not to promote animal activists or even promote some sort of theistic evolution that 
the animals evolved into man and then uh, they're like one another. No, rather, he's just saying the reality of life is that anything that has life will come to an end. You notice that it seems as though so far that Solomon, he, did, he does speak of eternity, but he doesn't highlight it too much. He doesn't speak much of the afterlife. This isn't to say that he doesn't believe that there's an afterlife or that there's no eternal life after this, because he said earlier that, he's, that the Lord has set eternity in the hearts of man. But rather, there is nothing in this, that you can do in this life that will transcend death. There's nothing that you can do that will, that in this life that will be brought over to the next like the religious, there's a lot of religious cults now that have the same understanding. The Egyptian cultures, even the Chinese cultures, they believe that if you if you burn something, or if you in the Egyptian culture, if you bury them with the with the pharaohs and in the coffins, that they can somehow bring this over to the next life. Both of them try to bury or burn things along with the person dying as a way to give things for them in the next life. The reality is that you come in this world naked and naked shall you leave this world. Your life, is, your life and all its achievements have no different than that of the animals. What you and I consider a massive success is, is, not, is only marginally greater than what the animals do. It's only marginally greater. Death happens and erases any significance in all that they've done in this life. Psalms chapter 49 Psalm chapter chapter 49 verse 10 it reads for he, for he sees that even wise men die the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others the inner thoughts is that their houses are forever and their dwelling place to all generations they have called their lands after their own names but man is but Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like beasts that perish. This is not the way, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Selah. As a sheep, they are pointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for shield to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the powers of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his father. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like beasts that perish. The same idea here, and I think in Psalm 49, is probably something that Solomon has meditated and even sung. He understands that you can't bring anything to heaven. All the things that you have in this life, all the achievements, is, is, is going to end. He says that all is vanity here. This is a common recurrence in this book, but what is different here, than the rest is not attached to the phrase, chasing after wind. Solomon wants to remind the reader to take death more seriously than they do life. Take death more seriously than you do life. Verse 20, all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. The fact that people turn to dust is evidence of the reality of the curse as shown in Genesis chapter 3. Now there's two points of understanding here. First is that throughout this book, there, uh, that nothing except for what God can do has permanence. Nothing except for what God does has permanence. What you do in this life is going to have the exact same leg- legacy as your pet 
dog or cat. It'll just be blown away the moment it dies. The second observation is that both share the reality that both are made by God and both will end. And when it ends, that's it. It will just turn to dust. I was reminded this past week by one of our elders that when his wife is sweeping the floor or dusting the cabinets, that the dust that particles are a part of them. They're actually sweeping parts of themselves up. And it's a funny and humbling reminder that being healthy is just just a euphemism for dying slowly. You can do your best to sustain your bodily vessels. You can exercise continually. You can keep up with your diet religiously. You can wear a mask. You can wash your hands obsessively. You can not smoke. You can drink water all the time. You can go have all the doctor's appointments and do basically anything and everything there is under the sun to try to extend your life. But at some point, you will be buried under the sun and you will turn to dust. And after your body grows cold, you'll just decompose, and then to dust you'll return. Every time a body dies, it should be a constant reminder that this is because of the fall. Everything and everyone dies. If you remember, it seems like a lifetime ago, but in early 2020, there was a fire in Australia, and there was a fire and it just burned everything there. It seemed like it burned everything. And I just Googled how many animals died during that fire. And apparently there were billions of animals that died. And then I just looked at, I just made, I just again looked up the fires that happened the last few weeks here in the Bay Area. How many people have died? The number was 24. What's common is that both, or not just that they were both killed by fire, but that they would have perished no matter what happened. Whether it was some sort of virus or fire, death happens. And for some seasons, the numbers are higher, and other seasons, the numbers are less. But death happens all around us. All death happens because sin has entered into this world. Sin is a reason for this. On a side note, as you walk outside and you see the ash on your car, as is in all of our cars, you have to remember that this is just a combination of plant life and and grass, and even animals, as well as potentially even some people. This is what you're breathing in. This is just, and it's gross, because sin is disgusting. Sin is what causes all this decay, destruction, and death. Every time you hear about death or attend a funeral, you are prompted in your mind to remember that we live in a fallen world. Every time you watch the news and hear of another tragedy, whether it's a human action against another or human against nature, whatever it is, you're supposed to be triggered to think back that this is part of the curse, that this is part of God's judgment on the world for sin. Sin ruins all life. The curse of sin is before our eyes every single day. So you and I must take death seriously. Verse 21, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? Solomon sums up, uh, Solomon seems to indicate that humans who die will go up to meet with the Lord while animals die and they just stay on earth. They stop being effective, they just die and they just stay on earth. The, and like, this is just a little side note that I know the, the statement where we say, oh, all dogs go to heaven or you're, you can see your pet in heaven and is it's a sad reality if you're parents and you're, if you tell your kids that you might want to close their ears, but they're but animals don't go to heaven, and animals don't go to hell either. 
maybe cats because they are of the devil. They look like, you know, pointy and evil. But animals don't go, don't go to heaven. The Bible does speak that one day we will see animals. We will see the, the, the animals and, uh, you know, was like the, the snakes will be with the, with the children and all of that. But one day, those are different animals. They're different from the ones. The animals that we have here are not going to go with us in heaven. This is what Solomon kind of teach here. That's the, the beast just descends downward to the earth. This should make us consider that human life does have some sort of eternal significance, whether you live for the Lord or you're living for yourself. What you do in this life has eternal consequences. You'll have, you have eternity to give an account to him on how you live your life and or you'll be rewarded or punished for how you lived your life. And this is why we need to th- take death seriously, because death happens to us all. Not only is this world filled with injustice and is filled with death, but Solomon at the end just tells us, just still enjoy this life. Even though there's injustice going on in the world, even though everybody dies, even though everything dies, in the end, enjoy life. Enjoy the life that you have, verse 22, which is our actual last point. Enjoy the life that God gave you, verse 22. I've seen that nothing is better than man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Even though the world feels like a place that is broken and backwards, Solomon's saying, enjoy it. Enjoy the best as you can. Enjoy as much as you can. The conclusion is the same as he said before. Fear the Lord, enjoy life. Fear the Lord and enjoy the life that the Lord has given you. If you want to enjoy life without the Lord, it will be meaningless. And if you only fear the Lord enjoy, and, and don't enjoy life, you're missing out on life. This life, this world, is a beautiful world. You can enjoy it. The things that you, you see and eat and observe, you can enjoy these things and still praise the Lord. You just have to remember that at the end of it, you have to fear the Lord, and the pleasure in this world doesn't last forever. God assigned us happiness in this life. Enjoy that life has given you. Be happy with what he has given you. The common grace that he's given you, you and I to live, something we can enjoy. Enjoy what God has given you and praise God for your short life. Before I was saved, I hated roller coasters. I thought it was just some legal form of child torture. And every time my friends and family would go to the, uh, you know, like Six Flags or some amusement park where there's roller coasters, suddenly I will have flu-like symptoms. I'll have just start throwing up. I'll get sweaty. I suddenly feel weak. Um, and really, it's just me being a coward. But, you know, I want to keep my pride intact. And roller coasters are, in reality, they're, they're just banana pants. You know, they, they don't make any sense. Think about the construction of a roller coaster. You're sitting in the chair, and there's a seat belt or a bar that you hold on to. And then even before you ride this thing, you have to make some very hard decisions. Because if you sit in the front, you feel like you're going to die first. But if you sit in, behind anyone, there's fear that that person in front of you might throw up on you. It's just like, pick your poison. And after I got saved, I started thinking about roller coasters theologically and thinking it biblically. And the theology of roller coasters is that it's designed to give you this kind of cathartic moment. And that you always feel like you're about to die, but you won't. You go on this roller coaster, it goes up and down, it goes left and right, goes in circles, goes all around you, and then, then it ends. And since you don't, you know, if you go on a roller coaster, you generally will not die, enjoy the ride, because it will be over soon. 
And life is like that. Life is like a roller coaster. You can't decide when it ends. It has these crazy turns up and down, roller coaster rides and going circles and circles. And potentially someone may even throw up on you. But God decides when it ends. And God will secure you until the ride is over. So until that moment comes, enjoy life. Enjoy life because it'll be over soon. Solomon tells us to have a balanced view about life, to fear the Lord and to enjoy it. In eternity, you can't and won't look back or think about what you have left behind. So enjoy what you have now. You won't be able to look back and wonder about all your investments or things that's going on in the world. And we see this very briefly in 2 Samuel 28, you know, when Saul was trying to disguise himself and, and talk to a medium to, to find uh, Samuel. He wanted to ask Samuel for advice. And the first thing that Samuel says after he comes back is not like, oh, how, is, how are you doing, Saul? Or how's the nation of Israel? How's David? He's not asking about any of those things. The first thing that he says is this, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He, what I would imagine, is probably in the, in the presence of God, enjoying that fellowship. And for a moment in time, God tells him, hey, go back for a second. And he's like, why did you disturb me from this sweet time that I have with the Lord? Wherever we are in eternity, whether in heaven or hell, you will be focused on the moments that you have, being either consumed by the, the beauty and majesty of our God or be consumed by the, God, the wrath of our God. Either way, you won't be thinking about the things in this life. Therefore, we must fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. But what does that mean? I've been saying this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. You need to fear the Lord. But what does it actually mean? Well, fear is oftentimes when we explain it to people, it's like, oh, it's this reverence or, or to be terrified. Sometimes we swing one to the other. We tend to go towards the reverence side because we can't imagine being terrified by God. And I understand that sentiment, but you have to understand, too, that God is very terrifying because of who he is. He knows your thoughts. He knows your actions. He, he created you. He made you. In reality, whether it's revere or terrify, it's both. You need to have both. If you To illustrate, if you were, let's say, walking in the woods and a bear shows up in front of you, I don't care how tough you are or what rough neighborhood you're from, whether you're from Oakland or, or Compton or whatever, but bears are gangsters. And you don't want to mess with a bear especially if there's a little baby next to them. And if you see a bear, every decision, every emotion, everything that you will do from that moment on will be dictated by this, by this bear. As beautiful and majestic as that bear is, it will guide you in every decision you make, whether it's play dead or you run or you scream, whatever. Everything that you do is going to be because of that terror of that bear. And in an infinite way, as we study God, as we know who he is from the pages of scripture, we should have a big view of God and that should make us terrified of him we should have a fear for him it means every thought every decision everything that we do is based on who he is we react to what is before us every decision you should make is because of the result of fearing the lord but how do we apply this how do we apply this fear of the lord this week well there's two audiences if you're a believer you have one set of responses and if you're an unbeliever there's another sense so we'll talk with the believers first here the first thing you do to fear the Lord and honor the Lord with your life is to cease the day. Cease, cease the day. Um, you enjoy life. Cease the moment. Enjoy the life that you have. You know, go eat that steak. Go, go on that walk and enjoy the sunset. Go on and you know, enjoy that boba drink. You know, have fun. Enjoy life because it's going to be over soon. You know, ride a roller coaster or something. Just enjoy the life that God has given you. But secondly, more important than that, is that you need to seize the opportunity to share the gospel. 
if you as a Christian understand that life is so much fun and exciting because you understand the eternal significance of all things, don't you want others to have that joy as well? Don't you want to share why you are so joyful because of what Christ has done for you, because God has redeemed you, because now you understand what your purpose here on earth is. You want to share to other people about the gospel because you want them to experience the joy that you have in Christ. And that's what we should do. We should be the most joyful people, and we should always be telling people of the Savior that we love, that, we are, that, we are, that we're saved by this good God that watches over us and blesses us. That's what we should do. As believers, you should cease the day and cease the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, for the unbelievers, you need to understand that death is coming for you as well. Your Your responsibility of hearing this message is to repent. Eternity is set before you. You may not know when, but it will come. You, your sin makes you a marked man. Every lie, every thought, every glance, every action that you've committed in your mind and even action that you've committed in your body is a sin against the Lord. He has a perfect record of everything. And when we see the Lord without, without a Savior, without any repentance or faith in the Son, there will be There won't be any delay when it comes to your judgment. What foolish thing to assume that one day when when you're standing in front of the Lord that you could somehow negotiate with him. I hear this sometimes when I talk to non-Christians. They say, well, God will judge me or I'll I'll figure it out with the Lord. You can't make some sort of appeal to the Lord. There are no redos. God has ample evidence stacked against you. You won't win. Some of you may actually think that you can talk God out of throwing you into hell. You may even cry out for mercy on that day, and God will respond by saying, No, I have, mercy, I have no mercy on you. There was a time when I can give you mercy without judgment, but now you will have judgment without any mercy. Depart from me. And some of you are going to stand in front of the Lord, and you will beg, Lord, if I must depart from you, let it be from your throne of judgment, but not from you. And God will look at you without pity and say, No, depart from my presence, which is joy. Depart and go to hell. And in terror you might beg, seeing I must be gone before you, please give me a blessing. And God will say, no, you will go with the curse. Depart. You may begin to even beg and plead, oh God, if I must go from you, let me go into a place of, of, of torment, but, but not into torment, but for some other place, some other, even if it's not pleasure, then of ease. And God will say, no, depart into the fire, burning and tormenting flames. Oh God, if, if it's into fire, then let the flames end or let me be able to escape from it one day. And God will say, no, there is going to be no end for you or the flames. Be gone into everlasting fire. And you begin to weep and you plead, God, please, God, let it be long then before I go to this place. And God will look at you with this final verdict and you say, no, depart from me for I never knew you. For you, non-Christian, you aren't supposed to cease and live for the moment. You need to cease from sin and cling to Christ. You need to repent and live. Cling to Jesus today so you can have salvation. There is nothing good for you on the other end of death. Turn to the Lord now while you still can. While there's still a breath that you have in this life, 
confess your sin to the Lord and turn from him so that you can have received salvation and eternal life. This is the plea that Solomon is trying to make to his audience. That when you understand death, if you are a believer, you can enjoy this life and you have something greater in the next. But if you are a non-Christian today, the only hope that you have is only in this life. There is no hope for you in the life after. So when you still have time, receive Christ today. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we're thankful for death, particularly the death of your son, that he has rescued us from damnation. Lord, I do pray for all of us as Christians that we enjoy the life that you've given us, even though it's difficult, and we trust ourselves and our pain to you. All the injustice that we see in this world will never be satisfied. And we know that on the day when when you judge, that everything will be made will be done right. We will praise you for, for such a good God that you are. And Lord, I ask for those who do not know you, that you will strike fear in their hearts, that they will be awakened to the fact that death uh, can come any time. And Lord, you're the decider of that. Lord, I hope that you can soften them to see just how great you are in sending your son to die on the cross and giving opportunity for those who do not know you to be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you for allowing us to hear your word and may we cherish it in our hearts and, and have, even have opportunity to share our faith with others who do not know you. Thank you for this time that we have together. Praise the name, in your son's name. Amen.